I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at RAINNetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the RAIN Insights podcast series. Today, David Lawrence, founder and chief collaborative officer of RAIN, sits down with Dr. Michael Makovsky, president and CEO of the Jewish Institute for National Security of America, a leading Washington, D.C.-based policy and educational organization focused on U.S. defense and national security issues in the Middle East. Dr. Makovsky has worked extensively on U.S.-Israel defense ties, U.S. policy toward Iran, Syria, Iraq, Gaza, the Persian Gulf, and the role of energy in U.S. national security policy and the Eastern Mediterranean. Previously, he served as foreign policy director for the Bipartisan Policy Center, special assistant in the Office of the Security of Defense, advising senior defense and an energy market analyst for various investment firms. Dr. Makovsky has written some recent op-eds that will be relevant to this podcast. The first, Saudi Arabia's OPEC decision wasn't as simple as betrayal, was written for The Hill on October 19, 2023. The second, Israel is ready to strike Iran's nuclear program if necessary. America must prepare to work with it, was written for The New York Post on January 12, 2023. And the third, The Arsenal of Democracy's Stockpile in Israel, was co-written with Blaise Mizel for The Wall Street Journal on January 25, 2023. Links to these articles are available in the description of this podcast. Mike, uh, truly a uh, great privilege and honor. We were joking beforehand that notwithstanding the fact that uh, we've known each other for many years, uh, you were still willing to do a podcast uh, with me. So thank you. <laughs> My pleasure, Dave. Okay. So, uh, you know, look, you've had a very varied background in, uh, you know, it's the director of JINSA, um, your and position in Washington. Um, putting aside what you do on a day-to-day basis, uh, in all my conversations with you, you've been actually one of the great honest brokers around uh, what is happening in the Middle East and very much uh, operated in the public interest in bringing together um, terrific people and, I'll call it, uh, very, very diverse um, talent to uh, foster understanding in the Middle East and and uh, how best to, you know, quite frankly, preserve the peace. Um, and by the way, thank you for some of your op-ed pieces that you've written for the Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Post, and other places. So I'll get that out of the way. Uh, in sitting down today, um, a lot seems to be happening in the Middle East, and my hope here is maybe you can start to uh, unpack what is happening, why it's happening, and what is likely to uh, occur. Uh, we have a broad audience of people who are vested in the Middle East um, from a um, standpoint of deploying capital, but uh, people who, quite frankly, care about what happens. And you know, many have friends and family members and all sorts of uh, religious connections um, in, in the various countries. And they're obviously visitors and uh, constantly um, are forging new commercial relations. So um, very opportune to have you today, Mike, to 
maybe unpack some of the past, current, and future events. Um, my pleasure, David. Great to be here with you. Thank you. So where would you like to start, Mike? Uh, you know, as we record this, missiles and, uh, and bombs seem to be dropping um, between Iran and the United States, and uh, we'll see where that's going. Uh, there was a, a bit of a treaty uh, breakthrough between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, Israel is dealing with its own issues. Uh, but feel free to start wherever you think appropriate. That will provide some understanding about uh, what's happening. Great. Okay. Uh, thanks again for having me, David. Uh, it's an honor to be talking to you. Let's start. I think today you just let's. Uh, I think you just highlighted three key issues, and uh, you know the Iran, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, and obviously then the China issue. So why don't we start with what? What's happening today, we're recording on Friday, uh, March 24th. So as you mentioned, there's in the last 24 hours, uh, there's the Iranian-linked drone attack in Syria, where the United States has about 900 soldiers, roughly, that killed one American contractor and wounded six other Americans in this uh, in, in, in Northeast Syria. And I think that, um, let's start with that, because I think the Iranian threat is what hangs over everything. And I don't think it's fully appreciated. Uh, I don't get a sense it's fully understood or it's been obscured recently. And I, and I would say that for my sense, even in the, uh, in the oil market, uh, which I tend to follow more than other markets, but, um, and let's start with that because I think, what we saw today over the last 24 hours is more the exception to the rule on the American side. In the last, in during the, let's just start in the Biden administration, so that's, you know, two plus years, there have been over 80 attacks uh, that my organization has counted. Um, and I think the Wall Street Journal had today something like 78, we count a little over 80 attacks on American forces in Syria and Iraq by Iran or Iran uh, proxies. And uh, what we saw today over the last 24 hours with the U.S. retaliating, uh, it's only the fourth uh, record, uh, retaliation that we have seen, uh, that we know about, uh, by the United States to Iran or its proxies. Four. There have been 80, over 80 attacks on Iran, U.S. forces in Syria and Iran. Uh, excuse me, Syria and Iraq, and only four uh, U.S. retaliations. I just want that kind of that disparity uh, to sink in, because if you look at Israeli uh, strikes against Iran and its forces in those two countries over the same time period, it's almost the complete opposite. Uh, there have been over 80 Israeli attacks, and there have been very few Iranian retaliations because they know that the Israelis are going to strike. And what we see today was with the Isra with the U.S. retaliation, even when the United States retaliates, which, as I just said, has been the rare exception in uh, just, let's say, the last two years, um, it's extraordinarily limited. Uh, we struck a munitions warehouse, control building an intelligence collection site, Secretary of Defense Austin said the United States took proportionate deliberate action intended to limit the risk of escalation and minimize casualties. That's about uh, Zadadine, uh, a statement as you could issue here. There were no threats against the Iranians. It, it, we didn't really, it didn't, it's unclear whether we targeted uh, 
personnel, but it seems like we are more focused on facilities. We're certainly not striking Iran itself, even though it's its proxy to the Hitler attack. So I think this is one of the big challenges in the region. And it illustrates, I think, a broader problem that the United States has that impacts our position and I think impacts regional stability and even global stability. And that's that the United States is seen as retrenching, uh, I'm saying is seen certainly in the Mideast by by the Israelis and by the Arabs uh, and by the Iranians, is retrenching, keen to avoid confrontation, is really not feared, uh, and I think is seen as an erratic uh, in its reliability as an ally. And that is inviting more Iranian aggression and has led to some of the things which we'll get to also about Saudi Arabia and Iran. But I think that's the broader context and what this exchange, which was more of an exception, I think really illustrates right now. So, Mike, uh, on note, uh, at least the last week, uh, there's been a a little bit of moment of pause and introspection 20 years after the invasion of Iraq, um, looking for weapons of mass destruction, and, um, you know, the beauty of living in a democracy is, you know, there's a wide variety of opinions. And I've certainly been reading a lot, uh, listening a lot, um, and sort of recognizing this. It's interesting that it's at this 20th anniversary point that the question about, you know, U.S. reliability as a partner is coming up, and I, I you know, uh, the point of this podcast is is not to delve into whether we are predictable, reliable, etc. But what I'm hearing from you is there is, based upon all the conversations you have, uh, whether it's in Israel, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, some of the bordering countries in the UAE, is that. That is the perception, whether it's the reality or not. Let's put that aside. But what I'm hearing you say is that is the perception. And with that perception, um, there seems to be heightened conflict and the potential for more conflict to come. Is that a, a, a more or less a fair summary? Yes, that's right. I think that you're right, whether it's reality or not, although I... Uh, that's the way our partners in the region and I think our enemies like the Iranians view us. And that does only invite, that perception only invites more aggression, more instability in the region. When the United States is seen as very strong, very reliable, uh, not retrenching, but actually, um, you know, committed uh, to the security of the region. And I think we are in many ways, but I think that people don't see us that way. that just invites more instability and, uh, you know, and so that's exactly right, David. And, and, and we see diplomatic implications or countries are going to act based on that perception. Our allies do. And listen, I, um, I follow Secretary Blinken's remarks. And again, what perception does become reality in, in many instances. And so what I'm hearing you say is that if that continues to be the perception, we should continue to expect what, Mike? 
All right. So I let's talk. Uh, we could talk about the Saudis, and maybe then we could talk about Israel, if that's okay. Great. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think Israel is going to be the bigger issue right now. But uh, the Saudis, let's talk about that because you referenced it already. I think that what you referenced a few minutes ago about this reconciliation, uh, you know, re-normalization uh, of ties between the Saudis and the Iranians, which have been ruptured, I think, since 2016, um, that I think is a result by uh, it's it was and and most very very importantly, it was negotiated and concluded in China. And I think that's very, very important here. So clearly the Saudis, and this is when we were in, when I was in Saudi Arabia, we met all the senior political and the military and intelligence officials, all of them. Uh, it was very clear that they, um, and although, um, you know, they don't trust us, the United States at all. Uh, they don't feel we have their back. Uh, they were very clear that they, want to be friends with us. They see us as uh, their friends, their allies, but they don't think they could rely on us and that they're going to have to. And I think the crown prince who's young, uh, you know, in his late thirties, he never studied here. Unlike Saudi, other Saudi Royals. I think he impresses me as a very pragmatic person. uh, And uh, he's trying to engineer a lot of domestic change to liberalize certain elements of society make uh, Saudi Arabia more of an investable place in, in many ways, uh, not just for foreigners, but also that he wants his own people to invest in the success of, of Saudi Arabia. I think for someone like him, there's no question that he's very frustrated with the United States. And that's partly what's behind this normalization with Iran, the Iranians and the Saudis. You know, the Iranians are the, the, the regional Shia power. The Saudis are the major Sunni uh, Muslim power. Uh, they have a long time rivalry with each other. We're store, you know, uh, and you know, for a long time we've been very close with the Saudis. But the case is that there's the the current Saudi U.S. relations are one of the, the one of the worst states it's ever been since they really like took off in 1945 between FDR and the uh, founder of Saudi Arabia, Ibn Saud. So I think that given that the Saudis feel they have to make their own um uh moves and uh, they have to not uh they have to reduce tensions reduce some of their vulnerabilities and uh not only for the so they reached out so they had this arrangement with the iranians but the i think for the united states what's so important is not only that 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 there was such a normalization but that it was done in china and i think that was an especially strong jab at the united states you mentioned secretary State Blinken, he publicly, I think it was yesterday, said that this was a good thing. Uh, you could argue maybe that Iranian-Saudi reconciliation has certain value, but the fact that it was negotiated and concluded in China is actually uh, a, a, a terrible thing for U.S. foreign policy. And our position reflects how our, our certainly our Saudi ally looks at us and also shows how China is, uh, you know, getting much more involved in the region at our expense. Okay, so once again, uh, Mike, you seem to be pointing to this, you know, issue of perceptions being reality. And um, the perception that China, and, you know, if you, you read various editorials and the leading 
media publications and if you listen to radio and TV, you know, there's no shortage of people who are pining on this. And I and what's important, forget what we hear in America. The view in the Middle East uh, of China as a broker of peace between uh, Iran and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. How, how do people there view that event? Is it about the perception it's very important that this took place in China, the Chinese were the brokers, where were the Americans? Is, is that really the lead issue? Uh, yes, I think it's primarily about the United States. Uh, um, and I think and uh, I think that's clearly how they see us. And they have to make other, you know, I'll say this, that um, this week, let's say, I'm sure many of your clients, you know, they're looking at everything that the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell is saying. They look at every single word. They look at what Secretary of Treasury Yellen is saying. And everyone is interpreting what she says and what she didn't say and what Powell said and what he didn't say. It's the exact same thing, I think, with foreign affairs, but we don't fully appreciate it in the United States till you go abroad and you talk to these folks. They are looking at every little thing that an American president, secretary of state, secretary of defense, what they're saying, what they're not saying, what they're doing, not, and what they're not doing. And uh, this is the conclusions they've drawn, and therefore they feel they have to hedge uh, and they have to improve. Now, Saudi, of course, and China have a, a, a good ties in many ways. And uh, Xi was just in Saudi Arabia and uh, the uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the MBS, the crown prince, welcomed him very friendly. Don't forget when Biden went to Saudi Arabia in July, I think he was greeted by the mayor of Riyadh. And he certainly was not, if I'm not mistaken, he certainly was not greeted by the crown prince. And they did the famous fist bump, you know, which I think by some people in America thought was too friendly, but clearly the Saudis, I don't think, took that in the in a very friendly way. And it was, the trip was not successful. And uh, look, and they're obviously, China is a large buyer of Saudi oil, uh, so they have good ties, and you can understand that they would. But for them to do this in China is a real, it sends a strong signal to the United States. So certainly one of the takeaways of uh, having you on this uh, podcast is the fact that um, people in that region look at every little thing and they are connecting the dots or they think they're connecting the dots. And so what may not be, as, as you were referencing necessarily, a headline issue here, very much a headline issue there. And this was at least... Um, from that region, it was highly consequential that this deal was brokered by and uh, executed uh, with the assistance of the Chinese in China. And what does this actually mean for the region? You know, we have many clients who have people in the region who are investing capital or taking in capital. Uh, for the business community, how should you know, they'd be thinking about these yeah, events. Good. Um, look, I think that actually this China, this Iran, uh, excuse me, this Saudi-Iran reconciliation, you know, negotiated by the Chinese, I think it has implications, but I think it's maybe in certain ways, I, 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 I don't want to overstate 
its implications for the region. Obviously, shows it reflects a decline in America's position. It it reflects greater Chinese interests. Of course, I think the Saudis are the Chinese top source of oil. Um, so, um, so we, we know they have a relationship already. I don't want to overstate it either uh, about what it says about the region. I think, if I may, David, um, I think the big story uh, about, you know, that might impact some of your, uh, you know, your clients, uh, to me, um, is really, it's also about Iran, but it's about the Israel-Iran story, if I may. Exactly. Yeah, right. and I think that, but it, it's part of the same picture, of course, of what we've just been talking about. This, what the, the Saudi-Iranian reconciliation is part of that story. Look, one of the great things in the region from a business standpoint, first of all, has been the Abraham Accords. I mean, I shouldn't say that, at least for the, some of the countries involved. I can't say that for outside investors, but it's certainly been very promising for Israel and very promising, I think, for the UAE. Uh, there's been a coolness uh, on that, I think, based on what's been going on in Israel domestically, uh, this new government, including with this new government, uh, which has some, includes a couple of coalition partners that the prime minister himself, Netanyahu, doesn't really agree with, but he's, but he's in, you know, he's made his bed with them. And they're pretty right wing on the Palestinian issue. And even though the Saudis and the Emiratis don't really care about the Palestinians, uh, I mean, they might give lip service rhetorically, but they they don't really care. Um, But it is affecting uh, Israeli, I think, uh, relations with the Emiratis. And uh, it might have some impact on possible normalization. But I think the big issue that I think the biggest issue for the region, which I don't think is getting the attention it deserves, is the way the Israelis, is Iranian nuclear escalation and how the Israelis are perceiving that. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just talk about that for a minute, if that's okay. Well, I think not, not only don't, don't I mind, it, it in large part was one of the central points for doing this podcast, Mike, and you, you've spoken and written quite eloquently, yeah. uh, not in alarmist tones, but urging people to pay attention to, you know, some of the things that are happening and, and what might likely happen. Right. So let me address that. Thank you. I think that this is what's changed in recent months. And even we see there's been some uh, new developments just in the last couple of days, which I'll uh, I'll, dis- I'll raise. First of all, um, Iran has escalated its nuclear program uh, to 84 percent enrichment level, which means that the, generally it's commonly understood that about 90 percent is considered weapons grade enrichment. And uh, basically, and uh, and senior U.S. officials have just said the same thing in the last couple of days. Basically, it seemed that if the Iranians so chose, they could get to 90 percent uh, within two weeks or 12 days, as some experts have, have said. So they are extremely close to enrichment level, enrichment grade, uh, I mean, weapons grade enrichment, excuse me. Now, they're not they're not accumulating uh, 90% or 84% enriched fuel. They're not stockpiling that, but they have the ability to if they so choose. And they can get to 90 without anyone really doing much about it, I think, very fast. This has gotten a lot of people's attention. They've all, um, and that has just been reported, you know, in the last month. Uh, second issue, 
that I don't think has gotten, now that maybe has gotten some of it, I don't think fully has been understood, is that there is a new Israeli government. It was formed at the end of, I think, December 29th, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it's obviously gotten a lot of attention about how, you know, right-wing, or I don't even know if that's the right term, I would say messianic, some of these coalition partners are, Smotrich, Ben Gvir. But, um, and of course, Israel is really, the domestic, uh, the issues that has been consuming Israel has been this judicial reform, which has led to a big eruption of demonstrations and so on, and uh, uh, some claiming legitimately or not democracy being uh, uh, being threatened. Uh, but I, but I think I think Israel will get past that. At least I hope so, uh, because their biggest security issue that they're really focused on. Certainly, I'm. I feel very very confident saying that I think the prime minister is most focused on is the Iranian nuclear threat, and this government, which I don't think has been fully understood, is the most hawkish government on Iran I think Israel has ever had. And what I mean is probably some of your listeners, some of the listeners might say, well, hasn't Israel always been pretty hawkish? No question. And even the last government that lasted about a year, which was kind of a bipartisan center-right, center-left government, was also hawkish on Iran. So it's not that, but what's different here is is that the focus a little inside baseball for Israel to act, there's always been a question, will Israel attack Iran militarily with its IDF? There's clearly been sabotage from Israel against Iran for a number of years, sometimes with the United States, sometimes not with the United States, by the Mossad, by whatever parts of the Israeli government. But the big question has always been, will Israel attack Iran militarily? This was last, I'd say, a big topic of conversation in 2012 when President when Obama was president, and there was a thought that Israel might attack. It did not attack. One of the reasons was because the defense minister at the time, uh, Ehud Barak, just changed his mind against it. And there were other members of the security cabinet of the government that also changed, that also opposed the attack. See, Israel, they don't have a president, they have a prime minister, they have a cabinet, but the decisions to, for military action like this, require security cabinet uh, approval. You need a majority. Right now, I think there's about 10 members of the security cabinet, I believe. And so for, let's say, Netanyahu, for example, the prime minister wants to attack Iran military because he thinks look, it's gotten too close uh, for whatever reason, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying if he wants to, he needs security cabinet approval. I don't see him having uh, opposition at all uh, to that. If, you know, there's like clear and present danger, there's no squish, so to speak, in the security cabinet on Iran. None. They're hawks. They're all hawks. And those who aren't maybe in, uh, animated by this issue won't stand in the way. So I think it's a very hawkish Israeli security cabinet on Iran. Also, when I was just in Israel last month, I was really struck. Obviously, every conversation I had, the, the Iranian enrichment, 84% came up. Uh, and uh, the question is what to do about it. I was struck by this meeting. Uh, and by the way, the defense minister has basically said 90% enrichment, which is weapons-grade enrichment, is a red line. Um they seemed extremely focused on this, very determined uh, that they cannot allow Iran uh, to, you know, develop nuclear weapons capability, and that this was not a theoretical decision they're grappling with, but something that could be imminent. Now, I'm not predicting an Israeli strike. 
I don't, and if I, if it would happen, I have no clue of when it would happen, but I think the probability of one has gone up a lot. And I don't think it's fully being appreciated outside. I think that because again, because of the, where Iran is on its nuclear program, because of where the Israelis, what kind of the Israeli government is, and because I think that the IDF, the Israeli military, the way they're speaking about it is different than, let's say, when I was in Israel and had meetings with senior security officials a year ago. That was a different government. Iranian enrichment was different there. I would hear Israelis talk about weaponization uh, because there's, you could have enriched uranium, but you still need to have, you have to weaponize it. And for years we've heard, well, Iran was maybe 18 months, give or take, away uh, from having being able to weaponize, uh, you know, to have a an actual weapon, a nuclear bomb. Um, I didn't hear them talk about that this time. The focus was more the enrichment level, uh, but which the Iranians are very close to getting to weapons grade. So, and I'll say this: it just came out, I think, in the, the yesterday or the day before. Our chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley, made a comment that was rather shocking, uh, where he said. The Iranians are several months away, I think that was the language, to weaponize. He said they're about 12 days away to having what's called breakout, to have this, be able to reach to this 90% weapons-grade enrichment. But he mentioned weaponize, and they were only, they were able to have a weapon within a few months. And now I haven't heard the Israelis comment like that, but to me that was rather surprising that didn't get enough attention that that's how close and i think the biden administration does take uh israeli threat you know comments because the israelis are telling the u.s now look we're really serious about this and you could see how the administration is reacting they are taking it seriously maybe people outside the government doesn't appreciate this fact but they i think the biden people are increasingly appreciate that that's why chairman of the joint chiefs Milley, made a surprise visit to israel a couple of weeks ago, Secretary of Defense Austin was in the region, but he was he went to Israel. So why are they going? Uh, there was also a big military exercise between the two countries that was very positive. That certainly the militaries both saw as very positive, and we're seeing as kind of a signal to Iran. But I think the Israelis see this, and I do as well, that it's really the Biden team trying to embrace the Israelis, kind of hug them, but hug them in a restraining way. They don't want Israel to attack. I think they're more prepared to have a nuclear Iran uh, than to. Uh, they'd rather, I think, have rather have a nuclear Iran than have Israel, try, you know, initiate a campaign to prevent a nuclear Iran militarily that could lead to a wider war. So the the Biden team is very worried about this, and that's why you see them going there and trying to reassure the Israelis. But I don't think the Israelis. I wouldn't say they, they say they don't really buy it. They know that the Biden team, what they're doing, and they don't believe that the U.S. And this isn't just a, this isn't about Biden. I mean, Trump didn't do anything either. Um, they don't think the U.S. is going to do anything militarily preventing Iran, so they know it's on them. They see what the U.S. is doing. They'd rather have U.S. support if they so chose to attack. Uh, but um, uh, they got to do, I think they'll do what they think is in their interest. Again, I don't know what they're going to do. But I think the probability of a strike has certainly gone up. And I'll just add one last thing on this. I think something that Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said that was rather also striking. He said that um, uh, 
he said uh, he said something like um, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically, uh, our policy, U.S. policy, is to prevent uh, Iran from having uh, a fielded uh, a nuclear bomb. Meaning that they fielded a bomb, they they like they 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 deployed it essentially, as opposed to having one that's unfielded that's you know like just in storage it was a rather bizarre comment but i don't think it was a comment that would have reassured the israelis at all and just re would have reinforced israeli concerns this is on them the united states is not going to take care of this problem they see this as an existential threat so did the saudis by the way but the israelis have more of the will to do something about it and i think they um i think the the time their decision time is coming up when that is i have no idea but it's certainly it's certainly the probability has risen i'd say in the last couple months versus let's say last year mike you referenced the abraham accords and for people who uh may not be familiar would you uh maybe just give a quick overview of the accords which i think were what was it was it 2000 and uh, 18, 19, maybe 19, that they were reached? Uh, it was formally uh, signed in uh, September 2020. Uh, and uh, basically, it was coined Abraham Accords um, and uh, by a retired general who worked at the White House. Uh, I, it, it I, was, I have to correct you. I always thought it was, you know, uh, the common father between Jews and Muslims, Abraham. But, that is that's yes. where it comes from. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, that's exactly what it is. It's uh, it was uh, that it's a great term actually. Uh, uh, coined that, and uh, it refers to basically normalization and peace agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and this was the first peace agreement between an Israeli uh, between Israel and an Arab state. I believe since Jordan in the mid nineties. And, uh, so it was, uh, it was a really dramatic development. And then it led to uh, a couple other arrangements with Sudan and Morocco. And, uh, but, uh, it was, I think the, one of the most positive developments in the region in decades. And it's been an amazing story. Uh, all these Israelis coming, Israelis like to, you know, it's a small country. They a lot of Israelis they like to travel, and uh, you know, a lot of Israelis going to UAE in particular, Dubai. Uh, you know, and obviously the Emiratis have a lot of money. The Israelis have a lot of technological know-how and other capabilities, including military capabilities, and that's another thing we could talk about. Uh, but uh, the Abraham Accords themselves were really more about the economic, social and political normalization between Israel and Bahrain right. and the UAE. And a significant development, even before it was signed, uh, I'll call it normalization, Mike, but there, were, there, were, there was a, um, a fair amount of normalization of economic trade and um, visits and you know exchanges going on uh, leading up to that. Um, yeah. And as you said, a very significant uh, moment. And so one of the questions... Um, with that amount of progress, is what do you th- see changing here in the Middle East? Um, and you know, if there is some form of military or cyber conflict involving 
Israel and Iran, or maybe even other forces. Um, where does that leave the Middle East? Where does it leave some of the economic development? Where does it leave you know, the notion of uh, investment into the Middle East and investment from the Middle East um, into the West? And um, invariably, our clients are focused on energy sure. prices. Look, I, look, obviously, one of the big stories is uh, on the positive side is what's going on in Saudi Arabia is the uh, Crown Prince, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, really, really focused on really kind of revolutionizing his country, trying to diversify it away from oil, uh, being so reliant on oil exports. And he has this 2030 plan and involves a lot of financial development. You know, he told us, you know, uh, when we were there that, you know, he wants um, uh, people to, uh, his own Saudi young people, he wants them to vacation in Saudi Arabia, they go, the students go abroad, he wants them to come back and work there. He really wants to change the society and have people invested in that. And they're putting a, there's a lot of money involved in this, and that offers a, a great deal of opportunity, it seems to me. It's not my, you know, is, is, is that. I think also the UAE-Israel connection, I don't think that's dead in any way. I think it's had a bit of a downdraft the last few months. Uh, but I think, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for, you know, collaboration uh, with Israel and uh, certainly with the, uh, in, in, and certainly Gulf money and maybe others putting that together and investing in both countries. So I do think there's some positive things there. But I, I, I for me, if I, I don't know, I, I saw, I saw again, I hadn't seen in a long time, the movie uh, Rocky Three, And, you know, to quote Mr. D., you know, what is your prediction about the fight? He says, pain. And I think to me, the overriding, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not as good as the Rocky one, you know, but it's still a good movie. Uh, but I thought that to me, that's the, that to me is the looming issue. And if I had to assign a, a higher, there's certainly great op economic opportunities. Uh, but to me, and this, I think, again, you know, I, I was in all in a long time ago, but I, I don't, um, I just follow it. I, I don't, you know, it's not me. I don't, I'm not a professional in any way about it, but it just seems to me the market doesn't, uh, I don't see enough appreciation of the probability for a major war uh, in the region, because that's what I think is the most likely trajectory we're headed on because of this Iranian threat. I don't know. Um, I think the, you know, I was talking to a, a sort of colleague of mine who's expert on the domestic Iranian issues, and he was talking about all the domestic Iranian problems they faced, you know, with this, these protests, these uprisings, all these people come out on the streets calling for a new um, uh, a new regime. Uh, one day, I think that day will come, that there will be a new regime in Iran. The Iranian people are very impressive, and there will be a huge boost, uh, I think, both for Iran's uh, economy and for foreigners to invest in this country, which, which which has a lot of resources and has a lot of capable people. I don't know when that day will come, uh, but I fear that before that day will come, uh, uh, whenever, you know, that, the, uh, that there will be some, um, I do fear the trajectory we're heading on, the most likely trajectory is a major Iranian-Israeli conflict, and that would certainly be bullish for oil. Uh, but... Um, 
I, you know, again, I, I'm not predicting it. I just think that's where the, the probability is, the higher probability is, given where Iran is in their nuclear program, and I think how determined uh, Israel is. Uh, now, if this government would fall uh, and there'd be new elect in Israel, uh, for some reason, because of all the domestic tumult they've had in recent months, I don't think it will, but I'm just saying if it would, that would change my traject- my uh, projection a bit because I think this government is particularly hawkish on Iran, uh, but I think any Israeli government is going to be, but this one is particularly so. But I think where we are now, where the trajectory is, I I see. I think that's where we're headed. Okay, and I'm I'm hearing more than that from you, which is that the markets are not necessarily reflecting that risk or incorporating. I don't that think risk. so. Yeah. No, I don't think so. And I, I'll just let me digress to another thing, which uh, uh, I always mark the end of every calendar year, at least the Western calendar year, uh, by uh, assembling the predictions of you know people and organizations that are highly, highly res- respected. And you know, obviously, people make predictions about you know the stock market. Put that aside. Um, you know, because I think the stock market obviously reflects the events of the world and the emotions around those events. Um, but in terms of geopolitically, what might happen? In terms of militarily, what might happen? In terms of, um, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, climate and other things. And um, we're, we're, we're not through March yet, Mike. Okay, we're, you know, a little more than midway through. And the events that have occupied us um, you know uh, I, I still say look uh, you know the annals of history they may not be significant but um, as you you saw what happened with the, the fall of uh, FTX and the run on Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other banks and uh, the impact of chat GPT and um, other forms of artificial intelligence and uh, we'll talk about uh, rail and uh, airline safety issues um, and some of the issues and, that have arisen there and some of the, watching some of the climate change uh, events. So much of what has occurred even through March was not on anyone's radar screen. And um, the, you know, maybe a, it's a false fallacy that people from the beginning of time have thought they, you know, reasonable predictions here. Uh, but it is interesting because uh, there's much that the markets have yet to incorporate. I don't think anyone predicted, you know, a treaty between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Iran brokered by the Chinese. I didn't see that, you know, out of some of the leading geopolitical uh, thought leaders, nor uh, predicting uh President Xi's visit to Moscow and whatever that might mean, you know, in terms of global affairs. And so it is interesting to hear you say that um, the facts, what you're looking at and what you're hearing um, is that this this is an issue that people should be focused on and the markets have yet to fully incorporate or reflect. So uh, in the few minutes we have remaining, what should people be looking for? out of the Middle East that could signal 
you know, potential military conflict, an improvement of relations, um, other what I refer to disruptive events. What what should people over the next? Uh, I won't even give you a long horizon, Mike, but I'll say over over the next you know sixty to ninety days. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I think they should follow what's going on in Israel. Because I think as long as Israel is so consumed with this domestic issue of uh, judicial reform, it, you could see it playing both ways, but it might impede their uh, their risk-taking, uh, their willingness to take risks. Uh, so if that gets resolved, I think the government, you know, there's some compromise, which I think there's going to be a vote next week. If that, and then things, if things die down a little bit on, on the protests, I think then Israel will start focusing again. Uh, more clearly on the Iran issue. I, on a positive side, and this could play, this could have some pluses and minuses for the region's economy, is what happens in Turkey. I know you're very interested in that, David. Um, there's a Turkish election that's scheduled for May 14th uh, for the presidency. The current polls have Erdogan uh, a bit behind the opposition. Uh, you know, uh, but he's a very charismatic guy. This this big earthquake that happened, which certainly, as you yeah. would have said, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the earthquake because I didn't see that on the prediction uh, it, scale and and and, right. and the oh, repercussions of that, right? But go ahead. Right. So you know, it it wasn't predicted, but they've had earthquakes there. Exactly. Were, exactly. Right. And yeah. they were setting aside the billions of dollars to uh, supposedly they were setting aside billions of dollars supposedly, you know, to make sure to mitigate an impact and prepare for a future earthquake. But there's a big question, where did that money go? Uh, and the areas that were hit in Turkey were areas that Erdogan's party, the AKP, uh, which is a more of a Muslim brother kind of party, um, have, uh, you know, where they have a lot of support. And the government has been heavily criticized there, both for not preparing all these years that maybe a lot of this money that was supposed to go for earthquake went to enrich, you know, cronies of the president. And, you know, uh, they were not prepared. And then they didn't respond quickly, which only got people even more angry. Uh, so all these, you know, the question, how many of these thousands of people that died, could that, that loss of life been prevented if the government had been more adept? And I think he helped come to power, I think, 20 years ago, partly out of response to the previous Turkish government or regime, you know, that they didn't react well to uh, an earthquake. Mike, can, was- can I just say one thing about the other thing um, that the earthquake raised as a civil issue, which I guess will be rolling in the election, is to what degree did corruption play a role in the construction process of the buildings? Well, that's an excellent question. I think a lot of people want to know that because uh, there's a lot of accusations that there was. I mean, he actually, Erdogan, to try to deflect some of the blame is the arrested contractors, if I'm not mistaken, and try to blame some of these. The question is, of course, who paid them? Uh, but he's trying to deflect the blame. But there's clearly it seems to recognition that there was a lot of corruption. But the thing is, and I, I'm not expert enough to know this, uh, you know, if one interesting surprise would be, if you're looking for surprise, I'm not predicting this at all, but what if he lost the election? Now, is that possible for him to lose? What I mean is, even if the actual votes, uh, even if he loses uh, in the actual votes, could he, uh, let's say, game it 
to say to use a nice word, cheat would be another word. Uh, the, the the tally uh, enough where he comes out the winner. Uh, what would be have to be, let's say, the actual deficit? Uh, I don't have an answer to that. You know, what if what would have to be the actual deficit that he would lose that is just too much for him to to adjust so that he appears to be the winner? I don't know. So one is he could just win and because he'll win. Uh, but what if he loses, you know, if let's say he loses by 2% of the vote, well, maybe that's enough where he could game it. So he declared, he's declared himself a winner, but what if it's 10%? I'm, I'm just making up these numbers. Well, that might be, people would say, you know, it's clear that he didn't win. Would there be demonstrations? By the way, might he do things before the election against, let's say Kurds, which he's done before in either Turkey or Syria, uh, to try to uh, divert attention, uh, to like build up more nationalist support, which is one of the pillars of his support. Would he try to, what I'm trying to say, would he try to create some sort of crisis, unlike the earthquake, which he didn't create, uh, but, you know, that would help him. And if he, uh, but what if he loses? What if he actually loses? And there's, it's, it's clear enough that he loses that he can't try to game it, that he doesn't uh, lose. Um that would be really an interesting thing. Uh, I'm not saying, and and by the way, what would it mean for investment in Turkey? Because on the one hand, this government is spending a ton of money to try to buy votes. He's got a uh, really rampant inflation. They've been spending way too much money, certainly on infrastructure, clearly not properly invested. Certainly in the earthquake, the area hit by the earthquake. But you know, the the opposition is for a more responsible use of government funds. So I don't know how that would play out from an investment standpoint. It would certainly have major implications strategically. The Saudis, I might add, have actually invested, I think, and try to help shore up the Turk uh, re- uh, economically recently. So they clearly made their bet with Erdogan. Maybe they just assume he's going to win. And that's probably the more likely bet. But I'm just throwing that out as an interesting event to watch and see how that plays out. And that's Turkey is a major country. It's got a lot of people, and uh, it's an important economy, and that would certainly have an impact regionally, okay. economically, politically. Yeah. All right, so um, things to watch. I, I, I love the fact that you pointed out the elections in Turkey because there really has not been very much coverage of that. Easy, you know, um, watching the politics in Israel and obviously watching what could be escalating uh, military conflict between the U.S. and Iran and how that plays in. Or Israel and Iran, most likely, I would say, even more right. than the U.S., yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, as we know, not all conflict these days has to be waged with boots on the ground, right, Mike? Uh, it is everything from cyber and drone aircrafts and, you know, various other events, including um, terrorist acts and assassinations. So um, anything else that you would advise our audience to keep an eye on in the yeah. Middle East? I mean, if there was, by the way, uh, again, if there was a major conflict between Israel and Iran, just to pick up on what you just said, David, would it be local, would it remain localized or would it expand? So you brought up a U.S.-Iran confrontation. Well, that's the last thing the Iranians want. But would the uh, U.S. get sucked into it? Um, Certainly the administration 
doesn't want to be sucked into that war, worries about getting sucked into that war, uh, to such a war. I'm, I'm not saying they would either. Uh, I'm not convinced the U.S. would get, but would it be, would Iran keep it localized? Would it just be in his, uh, a war between Iran and Israel? Certainly you would assume it's not 100% guaranteed, but you got to assume Israel then would also, if there was a war between Iran and Israel, then it's also Iran between, a war between Iran, excuse me, Israel and Iranian proxies. Most importantly, Hezbollah, which is in uh, based in Lebanon, which has, I don't know, 150,000 rockets and missiles. But there would be questions and there should would be risks. Would it also, would the Iranians expand this conflict? Would they attack the UAE? Would they attack the Saudis, which... Uh, I mean, they've already attacked Saudi energy facilities. They did it, in, for example, in 2019, and President Trump didn't retaliate against that, and neither did the the Saudis. So that would be a place where it could also spread. Would the, you mentioned terrorism, David. Would the Iranians, there was a report last month, I think it was a month ago, that in a British uh, Jewish publication that the Iranians, uh, and this was confirmed by a, a, a uh, an, a British, uh, an important British official, uh, that the Iranians have like engaged criminal gangs in London to map Jewish organizations there, that they did target those organizations if they were attacked by Israel. So if they do it in London, would they do it in Berlin? Would they do it in Paris? Would they do it elsewhere? Would they do it in the United States? I don't know. But uh, it does raise certain risks beyond. So we don't know. Uh, my own view is that the, as much as the United States shows, if there was a war again, that uh, as much as the United States would show support for Israel and no daylight, not necessarily with boots on the ground or anything like that, but just show support or maybe supply of weapons, then I think the Iranians are less likely to expand the terrain of the war because they don't want a conflict with the United States. I think to the extent that there's greater daylight between the, the United States and Israel, again, if there was such a conflict, then I think the Iranians would feel more emboldened and say, well, OK, we don't have to worry about a war with the United States. We're going to start imposing certain punishments on Israel, not just in Israel, but against Jewish entities or Jewish or Israeli facilities, you know, embassies or whatever in Europe and so on. Would they also attack again? I said Gulf Arab countries. I don't know. But those would certainly be risks if there was such a thing. Uh, so, you know, we, you know, we don't know yet. Obviously we hope there's no war, but, um, that's something to certainly watch is the nuclear program, where the Iranians are, what Israelis are saying, how unified Israel is, uh, internally. Um, and I think, and what, if anything, the United States is trying to do, uh, to prevent, you know, this uh, coming conflict. I think those are things for people to watch that would certainly impact the oil market, would impact the global economy and so on. Mike, uh, I un uh, you were the unwitting victim uh, with my last question of trapping you into a continued conversation <laughs> <laughs> around around these events because uh, these are, these are very, very important questions. Uh, I want to thank you again for, I know how valuable your time is and how much you are in demand uh, uh, with a, a wide diversity of clients. Um, thanks for the perspectives. Thanks for your continued travels and conversations. And uh, obviously not just in Israel, uh, but in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, with Turkey, uh, with uh, various connections involving China, etc. 
and uh, I'll let you go if you promise uh, to come back and continue the conversation, either in response to uh, events happening or certain uh, what I'll refer to as uh, developments that the markets uh, might be missing. David, I love talking to you on a podcast, off a podcast. So whenever you want All to right. talk, I look forward to it. All right. <laughs> Again, thank you, Mike. Thank you. Stay Dave. safe. You too. You can learn how geopolitical events could affect your business with Rain Intelligence Briefs. Our flagship risk intelligence products provide clients with access to the insights and analyses they need to make more informed decisions and drive better risk management outcomes, all for a fraction of the cost you pay yourself. Sign up at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emma Kami. Thanks for listening.